and welcome back to Tuesday at Dobbs's. Apologies for the slight delay. I got back yesterday, 7 p.m. from a five, six day tour of Scotland. First time I've probably been to Scotland and I would happily say that it's riding heaven. If you're interested in going somewhere in the UK, if you're not from the UK, or if you're in the UK and have never been to Scotland, it's it's without question the beauty spot. And the Scots are straight talking, no nonsense characters. I had such a brilliant time riding in the daytime and enjoying whiskey with beautiful views in the evenings. All of it on a Himalayan that I did a thousand miles on. Let me begin because that will all come in, in future videos on my other channel. Let me begin with this. Ian sent this over. In fact, this was about 10 days or so ago and I forgot to read it out in the last one. Before I start this, I initially read this and I thought, you know what, that's it. Sell your bike. Sell all the biking gear that you own. It's over for bikers when I read this. This is exactly what I thought. The, the stupidity is quite mind-blowing. This is, let me see if I can find the, the newspaper name that Ian sent over. Unfortunately not, but it's from a biking-specific newspaper or magazine. The title is, Motorcycles are banned from parts of the Pyrenees National Park. A measure to limit noise pollution prohibits the use of motorcycles in parts of the High Pyrenees National Park. Electric vehicles and cars are not covered by the ban. A special noise quality zone was created with a ban for motorcycles, quads and buggies throughout the year. This makes a large area of 80,000 hectares inaccessible to motorcyclists. The Pyrenees are located in the border between France, Spain and Andorra. The regulations described in the action plan for the declaration of a zone of special protection of acoustic quality in the Alps Pyreneo National Park distinguishes motorcycles, mountain bikes, quads, buggies as particularly noisy vehicles without taking into account their type approval or even the noise level they emit. Have you ever heard such a, a ridiculously shallow way to ban motorbikes? It's not even about the noise levels. I could completely understand it if they're looking to ban any vehicle over a certain amount of decibels. But just banning motorcycles because they're motorcycles is unbelievable madness and stupidity. It's anti-motorcycles for no reason at all. X amount of bikes are incredibly loud and infinitely loud in cars, I'll give you that. There are a lot of motorbikes where you can hear them coming from three streets away and they reverberate off every single building and everyone has to stop and look. I've said it so many times, I prefer quieter bikes and I wouldn't put an aftermarket, louder at least, exhaust on my bike. I'd put an aftermarket exhaust on my bike if it's more characterful, but not specifically louder. But that doesn't mean that motorcycles cannot be quiet because a motorbike can be as quiet as the manufacturer makes them. So, so long as surely a manufacturer, Triumph, Toy Toyota, Triumph or Suzuki, makes the engines and the exhaust note within the legal limit, then why on earth should there be any bans on motorbikes for noise anywhere? 
If a bike exceeds the noise limits, then fine, you can find them. If you say in the national park, if your bike exceeds this limit, which is above the legal limit, then you will get fined. Well, that's fine. Just like speeding, you'll get fined. And that's fine. But a blanket ban on biking, they're completely clueless in that part of the world, clearly. Totally, totally clueless. I was, I was actually angry when I read that because any vehicle can be as quiet as you want it to make as you want to make it. Unbelievable, really unbelievable. I move on, let me give you an update here. The Bonneville, it's been with the mechanic, I think almost two weeks, almost two weeks it's been with the mechanic. I, I called up the mechanic today, and this is a mechanic I rate highly, by the way, really good mechanic. I called him up and said, any updates on the Bonneville? And he said, no, he's still awaiting from Triumph because as is the case with most mechanics, it's just not in their interest to go looking for third party providers of parts. And they also don't have the time to be looking at all of these different manufacturers to see where they can source these parts. It's incredibly time consuming. So, sorry if I keep doing this, I've got Milka, Monica's mum's cat's hair all over me and I spend my whole day just trying to flick fur off me. Where was I? Uh, the part, so it's just not in mechanics' interest to spend a lot of time looking for aftermarket parts for the bikes and it may also be perceived as risky. So they'll always go to the, the main dealer, the manufacturers. So this, my mechanic, he, he ordered the part from Triumph, which is the, the head gasket, the head gasket. It's literally the head gasket. I think that's what it's called. It's the gasket anyway, the little rubber thing. My mechanical knowledge is zero. And he called up Triumph to Chase and said, look, when's it coming? I know it's on back order. When's it going to arrive? To which Triumph replied just today, literally three hours ago, we're hoping it may be here by the 1st of September. Now bear in mind today is the 28th of June. Bear in mind again, it was probably about two weeks that was ordered. So that would be two and a half months to wait for a simple rubber gasket from Triumph, a British brand, and I'm looking for the parts in the UK. It's it just blew my mind. In fact, to be fair, it blew the mechanic's mind how long it could take. And don't be too fooled into thinking that this is an old bike because yes, mine's a 2010 bike, but they made this exact model where I'd use the exact same gasket, head gasket. God, I'm so bad with technical terms. I'd use the exact same gasket all the way up until a 2015 model Bonneville. That means it's only been eight years since this model went out of production just eight years, and Triumph do not have the parts available for the bike, at least readily available. Oh, well, I couldn't believe it. There's one other thing it shows, actually. And this is, just before I move on to a few of your thoughts, I, the importance of knowing third-party companies for your bike. If you've got a second-hand bike that's getting on a bit, let's say 10 years old plus or so, the importance of knowing if there's a good company that can supply parts for your used motorcycle is so important. I showed a couple of weeks ago, World of Triumph. So I spoke to the mechanic, he said, look, 
parts on back order, 1st of September, earliest. But he said, look, if you know of someone that can get the part, or if you can find the part easily, please do get it and just send it in to me. Well, I know World of Triumph, and that's the place I've always bought my Triumph parts from. So I go onto worldoftriumph.com, I click on the exact make and model of the bike, it's got pictures of all the parts, and I could see that the gasket was there, 47 pounds. I ordered it immediately in stock and it will be with the mechanic in two days time. Just shows you cannot rely on the big, the brands, you know, to be able to readily supply you with parts. Once the vehicle gets eight years plus or so old, I just couldn't believe it. I'll move on to a few of your thoughts now. This is regarding Triumph Parts, a few people sharing their thoughts. Freddie, I pray that you don't have a seven-month wait. Parts for Triumph are made in China and distributed to Triumph UK. Freddie, I'm surprised that you're surprised. I'm moving on to Stewie now. That was from the Birchwood Biker just now. Moving on to Stewie. Freddie, I'm surprised that you're surprised about UK spare parts availability for a mark that's now mainly assembled on the other side of the world for many parts mainly made on the other side of the world. Why would spares availability be any better in the UK than in any other market? Admittedly, your bike is a bit older, brackets UK assembled. No, I don't want to lie, mine's not UK assembled actually, Stewie. It's also made in Thailand. I think the Triumphs they started making in Thailand, I think it was about 2005 or so, so mine's one of the first few years it was made in Thailand. And have a listen to this. Uh, Defender 110 Adventures on YouTube said, uh, Freddie, Triumph parts available. What a nightmare. If you think England's bad for a quick supply, you ought to try the south of France. I'm currently waiting for recovery back to the UK because I've been quoted two weeks for a chain to fit to my Triumph. Even aftermarket suppliers are taking five days. I would have been better breaking down in North Africa. Someone re replied to that, Rachel. Any parts I've bought were made in Thailand, so maybe that's the issue. Can you imagine that? Waiting two weeks for a chain. Two weeks for a chain for a triumph. I'm, I'm speechless, really speechless. I move on to insurance. The, I find this so interesting and pertinent to so many people. I did want to carry on a bit of this from insurance. I always say I've, I'll wrap up the insurance bit, but I find it really interesting. And again, it's so relevant for so many people. Let me just share a couple more. Good day, Freddie. Damn, milk his hair all over me. I'm so sorry. Good day, Freddie. I'm getting in touch from New Zealand. That was a good trip, or that was a good tip on the insurance for only getting third party, the most basic level of insurance. I've done the same thing. 2002 Triumph Speed Triple is well over $1,000 a year for fully comprehensive cover, but it comes down on third party to $60 a year. Unbelievably cheap. I'll just have to take the hit if it gets nicked. I only paid $4,500 for it. Cheers, Nick. I say, I move on to another one. In fact, from, from another Nick. 
Freddie, the cost of full coverage for my Royal Enfield Interceptor was in the realm of $1,500 a year here in the States. Likewise, I decided to go with minimal liability insurance because the price of full coverage was just going to blow the value equation of bike ownership. It would have been a terrible loss to have had the bike stolen or otherwise written off. But at the end of the day, I decided the risk for me personally would be worth it. That's the beauty of relatively inexpensive motorcycles. Buy it for cash and don't buy more bike than you can afford to lose. Now, my break-even point on full coverage versus minimum liability would be about four and a half years. I've had the bike for 18 months. I'm not there yet and time is yet to tell if I've made the right decision. Moving on to Tim. This is the final one with insurance. Freddie, totally agree with your comments on insurance. I've adopted this view 50 years ago. Just to confirm the view of buying the cheapest bare minimum insurance, no theft, no fire, nothing like that at all, the bare minimum and banking on the fact that you're going to save such a huge amount in insurance premiums every year that you can negate that cost and cover the cost within about three to four years purely from the insurance premium savings. I continue. I've adopted this view of getting the most basic insurance for 50 years. Do the maths on that. I had an accident on a Honda Goldwing in the early 1980s. The other guy's insurance wrote the bike off and paid up. In Germany, they deduct the scrap value of the bike and the bike remains yours. I put the bike back on the road for about 500 pounds at the time, including riding it back to the UK, this is brave, with a bent frame to get it straightened. So if you can get your head round a total loss is anything but, then this is the way to go. From Tim, thank you. On to Lawless London and a little bit about bike security here. And this follows on from, from bike insurance. How can, you, how can you protect yourself? If you're going to get the, the most basic bike insurance, how can you do your very best to make sure the bike isn't stolen? And I'm going to go on here to a bit of London. Freddie, having studied, and this is from Layman's Insight, having studied in London for a year, I can vouch for your claim that it can be very dodgy in parts. How highly do you rate those bits of kit which allow you to track your bike's location from your phone? I assume it would depend on how well you conceal the tracking device and also perhaps that some brands are better than others. Any thoughts? Yeah, I do have thoughts and a bit of experience with this. It's a very interesting point. I had, oh, I had, I have the Sysapp device. I had to temporarily take it off because I had such an issue with, with battery charging issues on my Bonneville that's just got the weakest battery in charge at the moment. So I've been having issues with it uh, and I need to put the Sysapp device back on, but it's just, just terrible issues with, with the Triumphs, Triumphs charging. But Sysapp's a good device, especially if you have no charging issues on your bike. It's one fee, you just buy, you buy the product, connects up to the battery, and it means that 
you don't have any external batteries to worry about. It's very, very simple. Just plug it into the battery. You've got an app, you can always check where it is. And it really does give a very, very good peace of mind. I remember in Spain once, about probably eight months ago, I got a ping on my SysApp device and, and I could see that someone was touching it at 5 a.m. in a little Spanish village. So I ran outside and there were two local Spanish men just touching and admiring the, the triumph. And that was fine. I didn't say anything. I just ran outside, saw nothing was going to happen and just left it there. But the point is, I was alerted to, to the bike being at least touched and other situations where if I'm in central London, for example, and I'm going out for a meal, I can always see where the bike is. So, for example, every 5, 10, 20 minutes, I can quickly go onto the SysApp app and be like, oh, yes, the bike's still safely tucked away on the street there. It's, it's not gone anywhere. And it gives a really, really nice peace of mind. The negatives of that, it's connected to the battery, so it's very easy to find. If you're a thief, you rip off the seat and you can see the SysApp device there. And also another negative in some people's minds, it's got wires. And sometimes people don't like wires. It's just simpler without having them. You've also got something called Monimoto. Let me just put up the Monimoto website as well there. That's no wiring at all. It's got a battery inside the device, so it means that it's much easier to hide that Monimoto device, but you've got monthly payments. And there's one other I wanted to show you here that I've got no experience with, but it's on, a, it's on Urban Rider, and it's called Bike Track, Motorcycle Security Tracker. It's 300 pounds, and you have to install it, pay for it to be installed for 150 pounds. You then on top of those costs have to pay either monthly of 10 pounds a month, yearly of 100 a month, or for two years you can pay 180 for two years. But they've got a proven track record of 94% recovery rate. So they've got core centers where if your bike gets stolen, you quickly call them up and they can help you try to find your bike. I think it works like that. And it's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That all looks brilliant, but it is expensive. Let's say you buy the device at 300 pounds. Fitting is 150 pounds. And I don't know if there are wires involved in that, but I always get a little bit nervous of any new hard wiring going into the bike. I'm happy for something to be plugged into the battery, just wired in, but any hard wiring, I'm, I'm not sure if I would feel 100% comfortable with that. And then you've got the £10 a month. That's £120 a year. That is not an insignificant amount of money. And it does start getting very, very expensive. There is another option, and the two aren't mutually exclusive here. You can have both. You don't need to have one or the other. That's just getting the best physical locks that you can get. Now, the best scenario is you get both. You get a tracker and you get the locks. But I wanted to have a look at some of the locks on top of the trackers. I got this, this comment from JW. Uh, Freddie, I was born and raised here. In fact, two more here. Freddie, I was born and raised here in London and it's unrecognisable to what I experienced when I was younger. It's like the Wild West in many places. I only see the change accelerating and not improving. 
I've long considered a move up north. London is just not worth it anymore. Another, the criminality in London regarding bike stealing that you mention is an indictment of the current and past governments who do not rate it important to patrol the streets. A pathetic response from authority is uh, to this serious matter. As you say, lawless. And finally, from Richard. Uh, Freddie, on the subject of locks, would you please do a piece on the best value options? I've recently bought a Royal Enfield Interceptor 650 and keen to keep it. It's parked securely overnight, so just worried about the times I'm out and about. I live in Manchester, by the way. Cheers. Right, Richard, I've done some, some research here. I've used Bennett's and I found three locks that I would put my money where my mouth is and buy. And this all comes from Bennett's having a look at some of their top rated locks. If I want absolute certainty, you can never be certain. If I want to feel as safe as possible, and when I did want to feel as safe as possible in London, as I said, I would always have two locks, disc lock on the front or a lock on the front of some form and a chain on the back. Now it's going to take up too much space having two chains and no one can be bothered to unlock two chains and then take up an entire pannier with two chains worth of locks. That's just going to make your biking experience miserable. So you need to balance actually being able to enjoy your bike and not being constantly in a state of paranoia and having a decent level of security. So you could go for two locks like I will say here or just pick one of them. Now, the three that I've chosen, looking at Bennett's, number one is the Lightlock X3, and that's the one I've got. It's a simple D-lock that can go around your front wheel. It's extremely strong, very, very secure. The problem with it is it's too small to actually physically lock around a lamppost. So that means if someone really wants a bike, they simply just have to lift it up. And don't think specifically that just because you've got a lock on and you may have a heavy motorbike, a Harley, for example, a Triumph Rocket, that that can't be picked up. Because I know of someone who told me personally that they had a Triumph Rocket in London, locked but not locked to anything, and guess what? It got stolen. He, he walked downstairs from his flat in London and his Triumph Rocket, the biggest production motorcycle, at least engine-wise, in the world, and someone somehow managed to lift it up, I'm assuming put it in the back of a van and steal it. So it can be done. I also know of this happening to Harleys as well. So just because it's heavy, it certainly doesn't mean, especially in London, that it's not going to be able to happen. So that brings me on to two other options that I've got here, Richard. My suggestion, as a must, if you're in Manchester or somewhere where bike crime may be high, there is no better form of securing your bike than a chain physically locked around something. And the one I found that I like the look of, and it's a fair price, is, I think this is a British brand. I'm sure someone mentioned this to me in an email. Pragmasis. It's called the Protector 13mm. It's got the chain and the lock. It's 111 pounds pounds sterling to buy. It weighs six kilos and it has scored good or average on angle grinder attacks, sledgehammer attacks and bolt cropper attacks. 
and that's a decently good score considering the competition it's up against. So I would definitely buy that lock as my first port of call. That's the first thing I'd buy and I'd make sure if possible, it's not always possible so don't worry, but in town, if you're in a dangerous town for bike crime, get a chain, physically lock it to something, then you'd have complete peace of mind. On top of that, what I would buy is the Magnum Plus disc lock. See, it's very small. So couple this with the chain and this won't be taking up too much space. And about two years ago, this was 80 pounds. And this scores well in all areas. It comes with a little pouch and it's meant to be a very, very good solid lock that comes with an alarm. In fact, I didn't realize that, I'm just checking. Double locking, five keys, comes with alarm. So if someone does try to tamper with it, an alarm goes off. I'm not usually the biggest fan of alarms on bikes. I always think it's something that's just going to go horribly wrong and they get quite annoying. But I guess that's no reason not to buy it just because I personally don't like alarms. So I think I would take that as well. So disc lock and that chain. And I think, Richard, you could, you could sleep at night and then wander around Manchester really with very, very few concerns. I move on to... So sorry, I didn't write your name down. Hi, Freddie. Apologies. This is a gentleman in the US. Freddie, do you find motorcycle touring to feel more adventurous on smaller, more basic machines where you have fewer comforts, fewer rider aids and less capacity for carrying the kitchen sink? You've probably touched on this before, but how now after your Africa tour and that big blast at the end across France? Curious about your thoughts. I'm planning a trip on my Multistrada V4S from the spe specific northwest, Pacific Northwest in the US to the Rocky Mountains and back again. Two and a half thousand miles in all over about eight days. I can't get over the feeling that the routes and the days in the saddle might seem more interesting and more adventurous on a smaller, more stripped back bike. I feel with my beloved new Multistrada, like I have to plan longer, more arduous trips just to get the same feeling of adventure I'd be able to enjoy on a lesser machine. Would you have enjoyed the Morocco trip more or less on, say, a Harley Pan America? Let's hear your thoughts. Right, first off, I'd love to hear all of your thoughts on this. And secondly, before I give my thoughts, let me just share a, a comment that someone made here. This is from Walt. Hi, I toured on my Royal Enfield Meteor 350cc 2-up from the UK down to Santiago de Compostela via Plymouth, Santander and back through France to the UK via Cannes and... Portsmouth. No problem at all. Actually, I enjoyed it more than ever. Before this, I've done this exact trip on my 1000cc BMWs or my 900cc Triumph or even my 1200cc Triumph. These Enfields are great for this. I'm touring. I'm not racing. I genuinely get both sides of this argument because it'd be quite easy for me to, to say here that smaller, simpler bikes are more fun. But if I had the money, and this is the truth, if I had the money to go out and buy a bike, any bike I wanted, 
The truth is, there's a very good chance I'd go out and buy a massive Harley Davidson to go alongside with my Bonneville. I don't think I'd... Well, I don't think... I know I wouldn't sell the Bonneville, but I wouldn't mind a massive bike to go alongside it. Now, I'm not specifically a touring bike kind of guy. If I were going for a massive bike for long distances, I would buy a massive Harley or an Indian or a Triumph. But that is only my personal preference. So what, what's more fun and what gives a better feeling of adventure? The only way I can really judge this is when I had seven hours riding on the Harley-Davidson Pan America in Tenerife. And I, I felt every element of that adventure. Maybe things feel like you're being pushed to the limit more on a, a modern classic bike because it's so stripped back, no wind protection, nothing. So you feel like you're, you're closer to the elements. There's no question about that. And it does more turn a shorter ride into a real adventure. But I think that Ducati Multistrada or any big touring bike, I really honestly believe you'll feel every element of the adventure. I think it comes down to something as simple as this. You just have a slightly more comfortable adventure. And it also comes down to one more thing in my mind. That is, let's just say you've, you've got the money to buy your dream bike. It comes down to, is it your dream bike that you've bought? Because if I had a stable of my dream bikes and I was heading off to Morocco again, my main concern wouldn't be what bike will feel most like an adventure. My main concern would be what's my favourite bike to take. So, for example, if I had a, a Harley Davidson Softail Deluxe, if I had a, a Triumph Rocket, yeah, I would take one of those down to Morocco, 100% it would probably make the journey easier because they've got effortless power, but it wouldn't turn it into any less of an adventure. I really, really believe it. A slightly different kind of adventure, uh, but no less than an adventure. I think with your beautiful Ducati, it will be every element of that. Although, although a lovely addition to that may well be a modern classic, just turning those shorter little rides, the hour, the hour long rides, the coffee shop rides into uh, a different experience than you've got with the Ducati. But, but I honestly believe, truly hand on heart, that every single bike makes any journey an adventure. Enjoy it. Sounds like a trip of a lifetime. I move on to the final point for the week, and it's the bike of the week. This comes from Steve. Freddie, I've been listening to your podcasts for quite a while now, and I have never heard you mention in your list of classics the mighty, I've added the word mighty, the mighty Honda Goldwing. Take a look at the original GL11, no, sorry, take a look at the original GL1000. There's still some beauties around, made for munching the miles and reasonably priced. I'll give an overview here. This comes from Wikipedia. And I'm quoting, characterized by press in September 1974 as the world's biggest motorcycle manufacturer's first attack on the over 750cc capacity market. It was introduced at the Cologne Motorcycle Show in October 1974. So what is it? It's the first ever Goldwing 
but it's nothing like what you think of a Goldwing now. This is completely stripped back with no wind protection at all. It's, well, it came out in 75, so that'd be 25, 45, 48 years ago. It's coming up to its 50th anniversary. 76 horsepower, 190 miles you get per tank. And don't think it's a lightweight because it doesn't have all of those fairings. It is dry weight, 265 kilos. But what can you get for one of these out and out classics now? I was hoping that I may be able to find some bargains and say, can you believe the price you can get these for. But these are now uh, a fairly bang on classic. And I think from last time I've checked, prices may have started going up on these. It looks like the, the cheapest one that's in rideable condition, they'll come in from about 4,000 pounds. I found one on Facebook Marketplace, private seller, 1979, so four years after it first came out and it's 4,000 pounds. You can get them for about three and a half K if you're lucky, but 4,000 pounds seems to be the starting point for one you can walk to or travel to and actually ride it away. A lot of them say that they need some kind of work to, to get the engine ready, the carbs balanced, etc., etc. But this one is ready to go. It's from Wales, 1979, 32,000 miles on the clock. Just have a look at how how good this bike looks. I love this engine. Beautiful looking engine. Everything's so stripped back. And that seat, this is my kind of bike. That's a proper all day comfort seat. It, it wouldn't look ridiculously out of place as a modern classic now, it really wouldn't. It's a very, very smart looking thing. Before I carry on admiring it too much, let me just read about this to you, this exact one. Honda Goldwing GL1000, plain Jane, 1979, 43 years old, and as you can see from the pictures, in good condition for the year. I bought the bike after COVID and recommissioned it. I was riding it last year without any issues. I have the original keys and the bike is standard apart from the exhaust silences. I also have a spare set of wheels that will go with the bike. There is some history with the machine. It's a reluctant sale and I'm in no rush to sell. It needs to go to a good home. I think that's just stunning. There's nothing I'd do to that apart from get it tip top mechanically. I wouldn't change a thing though. And I'll leave it there. Thank you so much everyone for listening and watching this week's episode. I hope you all have an amazing week and a brilliant weekend. And I'll speak to you all in the next one.